So there's this understandable temptation, which is to direct all of our energy toward like getting home and staying home. Get to the safe place, get to home base, get there and stay there. And then do whatever you can to protect yourself from the things that might take you away from there. I think that's understandable in all sorts of ways. And it plays out in our personal lives and it plays out in faith communities. And yet what we looked at for the last couple of weeks is that the scriptures don't really know that story. You just can't really find that particular energy there. Instead, what you find over and over and over again is, is this pattern of people being called out from home or sometimes kicked out from home and finding themselves wandering in a wilderness place far away from where they perhaps wanted to be. And, and then we discover God doing all sorts of things in them and through them in those wilderness places, forming them, shaping them. It's just sort of the expectation of scripture that this is a lot of what it will be like to be human, that you're gonna find yourself far from home and that you might learn in those places how to be on the look for God. So we've been talking about that. It's been um, sacred and, and both joyful and heavy-hearted to hear all the ways that people in this community have and continue to experience that sense of being far from home. Uh, I know that so many of those stories are painful, but there's also so many stories that are hopeful in ways that I keep hearing about people finding new ways of life and faith while they're out on the open road. So um, this has especially been one of those conversations that I've discovered that most of the action isn't up here on the stage but rather it's just in, in the lives and the stories that are being told in this community. Um, and today we're going to move just a little further and look at one more uh, aspect of that experience that you see in the scriptures. First, a story. Uh, years ago, a friend of mine was called out in a way. In this case, he was being called out to a new job. So my buddy Pat uh, is a Midwest guy through and through, born and raised in Wisconsin. He's very Wisconsin, if you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> And then he ended up here at Notre Dame for law school. And then when law school was done, the first job that he took out of school took him to Portland for a clerkship with a federal judge out there. And like from the Midwest to Portland, when you're as Midwestern as Pat is, might as well be God saying, I'm calling you away from your country, your father's household, the place that I will show you. The courthouse, the federal courthouse in Portland, uh, where he would work for the next year, is like at the center of things in that city. And so we had a running text thread for a while where he would send me stories or images of the most Portlandia-type things happening outside his window. Like one day he sends me a picture and tells me the story of this guy who actually shows up every day for weeks or months, and he just rollerblades around the federal courthouse on the streets of Portland in a cape, a Darth Vader mask, and speakers playing the soundtrack to Star, Star Wars. I almost said Star Trek. Would have been a mistake. Yeah. So anyway, so my very, very, very Midwestern buddy Pat gets called out from the Midwest uh, to Portland for a new job, for a new adventure. And that means he's got to move out to Portland. And so I decided I'm going to jump in the car with him for the road trip from Chicago to Portland, all 2,500 miles of it. Now, this sounds exciting to me. I love a good road trip. Maybe you're the type that has the same feelings about this kind of experience. There's a romance to the idea of the open road and your friends and some good music and no real schedule for the next few days. And so we start out in Chicago. We take his 2002 Jeep Grand Cherokee, which at that point was 12 years old. We pack his entire life into that car, and we set out as that poor vehicle just sort of sags on the interstate, right? For a little while, it, it delivers on all of the romance of leaving home, setting out on an adventure in the open road, and we're having a really good time until about 1,400 miles into the trip, and we're in the middle of nowhere, Montana. Anybody ever been to nowhere, Montana? 
Yeah? Okay. We're in the middle of nowhere, Montana, and we're cruising along, and the music's playing, and the road noise is there, and the windows are down, which means it takes us a little while to hear the sound that's coming from the car. We notice there's a, an alert happening, and Pat looks up to that little message center that's right above the rearview mirror, and it's telling him to look at the gauges on his dash. And so we look over to the gauges on the dash, and he and I are neither very mechanically oriented people, so we're looking at the dash, trying to figure out if there's anything out of the ordinary there, you know? And then we discover there's this thing called the temperature gauge on your dash, which I don't know about you, but I don't know that I've ever noticed in my entire life until this point, right? The temperature gauge is that dial on your dash that when you start your car, it's probably pegged over here, right? And then if things are going well and the engine's just sort of operating, it comes up to about noon, that's where you like it. And the one thing you don't want to see is that needle pegged all the way over at the other side. And we look down, and it's not just moving in that direction, but it, it, it is pegged up against that little pin that sticks out from the dash to keep it from going any further there, right? So we figure we should probably pull over. So we take the car to the side of the road, and we sit there. Now, you might be the kind of person at this point who would like get out there and open the hood and fix things, but you have not met me or Pat if you think that that was an option for us. So we're sitting out there uh, on the open road just figuring out what to do while the car sort of cools down a little bit. And we realize we're on Interstate 90 in Montana where semi-trucks are going like 90 miles an hour. And we're as far off the road as we can get, which means there's only about two feet between our car and the lane. We're like, this is not like very safe for us to be here, right? But we're not really sure what to do. Because like I said, this is the middle of nowhere in Montana. Uh, by the way, I have a picture from the actual general area of Montana where this happened. Here you go. This is where we are. Right? This is a place where you can literally go 50 miles without seeing an exit, let alone an exit that's populated by anything resembling civilization. But there's nothing else that we can do, so we let the car cool down for a bit, then we start her back up and we keep going forward. And luckily, we do find an exit just a couple of miles ahead. But again, we don't know what's going to be waiting for us there, so we take the exit, get off the interstate, and pull into the town of Whitehall, Montana, population 1,038. Exactly. Yeah. We see a gas station, no service shop, but it's at least safe cover. So we pull in there and turn the car back off and keep it under the shade of the pavilion there by the gas pumps. My buddy Pat, he gets on the phone. He decides he's going to call the mechanic who worked on his car right before we left on the trip because Pat had the good foresight to take his 12-year-old Jeep to a trustworthy mechanic and have it get like the front to back, top to bottom, look over, new fluids, new brakes to make sure it was ready for this long-haul adventure on the open road. So he calls that person. The one thing the mechanic says to him is, whatever you do, don't start the car again. It might blow up. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> so Pat's on the phone with him, and I figure, I'm just going to go see like, what's available in Whitehall, Montana, population 1,038. <laughs> so I go walking for a little bit. I come around a corner, and lo and behold, I find Cliff's Auto Shop. Yeah, right? Like a an oasis mirage in the desert. And I think this might work, you know? Now, Cliff's Auto Shop is... Not drive and shine. No leather seats, no big screen TV, no Keurig, you know what I mean? Uh, this is sort of an old school uh, place. I walk into what appears to be the front office where there are dusty stacks of papers that look like they haven't been touched in years. And I meet this really kind-hearted, warm woman who asks what trouble we're in and how they can help. And so I tell her the story. And then I watch her walk into the garage bays where a couple of guys are working on vehicles. And I'm thinking to myself, we are at their mercy, right? There are forces beyond us here that we desperately need to go in our favor. We need these people to want to help us, right? Because like, if not, they can decide to not get around to it for a few days. I'm sure they have other work to do. They can decide to charge us whatever they want. 
Something like we need these people to not only agree to help us, we need them to want to help us, right? We need to like build a bridge here or something like that. So I'm explaining the situation to this woman. She goes out into the shop. I find out later this is Cliff's wife. And then it's his son who's out there in the shop working on a couple of the cars. I keep my distance so as to sort of give them their privacy to discuss these out-of-towners who've showed up in their midst and ask them to stop everything to help them. So I'm just watching uh, Mrs. Cliff walk into the shop where she begins talking to Junior Cliff as Junior Cliff is sort of bent over inside his car working on things. And I, I see her sort of say some things to him, though I can't hear what she says, and then I see this, this look, this body language in him, which can best be described as what you would see were an eight-year-old out there in the sandbox when mom comes out and says, it's time to come in and do your chores. Like annoyance, indignation, frustration. And then he snaps his head my way and he looks at me, kind of looks me up and down. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is a moment where he's trying to figure out if I'm his people or not, right? Because like, if I'm his people, he probably wants to help. But he's like evaluating the outsider. And then I think in that moment of a moment that happened a few weeks earlier when same friend Pat and I are hanging out at Fiddler's Hearth one day, he's studying for the bar exam and I'm studying for my summer classes. And so we're there with our books open, uh, working, reading. And there's this table of women sitting next to us at Fiddler's Hearth. And we realize they're kind of whispering about us. And then one of the women says to us, she says, excuse me. She says, are you guys musicians? Now, the reason I tell you that is because a few weeks later, I'm standing in Cliff's auto body shop, dressed exactly the same as I was at Fiddler's Hearth. And I'm thinking to myself, whatever it is about the way I dress or mannerisms or body language or my general presence in the world, whatever it is that those women looked at and thought musician, it's probably not the same thing that a mechanic in Whitehall, Montana, population 1038, looks at and thinks, my people. So I'm standing there in the shop thinking I picked the wrong day to wear skinny jeans. And Cliff looks me up and down and then tells his mom something, and mom come, or Cliff Jr., and mom comes over to me and says, hey, we'll come over to the gas station in 30 or 40 minutes and see what's going on. So I walk back to the gas station and wait. 30 or 40 minutes later, uh, Cliff Jr. comes over on his four-wheeler. <laughs> True story. And, uh, and he's like, well, have you looked at it? I'm like, no, because why would it do any good for me to look at it? So he pops the, the hood, and he starts kind of taking stock of what's happening there. And I'm thinking, like, I have got to start building a bridge with this guy. Like, right? Like, again, like, something needs to happen. That he's going to want to help us. I'm thinking, like, Dale Carnegie, win friends, influence people. <laughs> So I figure I should at least ask the guy his name, right? And I said he's Cliff Jr. What I mean is he's the son of Cliff, but he's not actually Cliff Jr. So I ask him his name, and he says, well, my name's Jason, but my friends call me Jay. I was like, my name's Jason, and my friends call me Jay, you know? He smirks a little bit, and he shakes my hand, and I think, we can work with this, right? They tow the car over to their shop, it's early in the afternoon, stop everything they are doing, everything they're working on, and they start trying to work on my buddy Pat's car. They start working through possible parts that might be malfunctioning. Uh, one of the parts that they think might be broken, they don't have in stock, and so they send mom on the highway, 30 miles down the interstate to a shop to get the part and bring it back. They swap out that part. They take it out in the open road. Same overheating problem happens. They bring it back. This pattern of finding a part, swapping it out, taking it out on the interstate and bringing it back happens four times over the course of seven and a half or eight hours that day. At one point, like we're in the shop because again, there's no leather couches, Keurig and big screen TV. So the waiting room is just the shop, right? So we're in the shop with the guys trying to be friendly and learn a little bit about them because I feel like this is a good time for me to learn something. I've never in my life stood in an auto mechanic shop and learned anything about a vehicle. So I figure I'll ask questions and maybe that'll be endearing. And then he hands me a part from the car and he says, that's the water pump. And I said, well, why is there water in the car? 
He says, what? I said, you said it's a water pump. And he said, yeah. I said, well, why is there water in the engine? He said, it's not. It pumps coolant. I said, you should call it a coolant pump. And he looks at me like, are you really going to lecture me right now on how we should do what we do? And I think, all right, back it off, Jay, back it off. At one point, one of the mechanic's girlfriends walks into the shop wearing a dress carrying an adult beverage of her own. And I realize this is date night for the two of them. So she spends date night in her dress sitting in the shop watching her boyfriend work on the car with us. I see the adult beverage take my cue and think, it's after hours, not for the shop. They're not seeing any other customers. I should show some hospitality to these guys. And so I asked them, like, hey, can I go across the street and like, get you a drink while you're, while you're working? Like, you guys are whiskey drinkers? And, and Cliff Jr., AKA Jason, AKA Jay, says, nah, thanks, man. I stopped drinking a while ago. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, I only drink beer now. <laughs> so we go over and get a, a case of beer and bring it back to the shop and, and work with the guys as they keep trying to make this car like, happen for us. Third trip out where they swap out a part, take it on the road and bring it back. The car comes back into the garage with some kind of liquid flooding out of the engine as they're pulling in. At this point, I feel, like, I feel like I had a buddy with a sniffle and I took him to urgent care and all of a sudden they're walking in with paddles yelling clear, right? Like things are getting worse, not better. But eventually, four different part swaps, like eight hours in the shop, way after they were supposed to be closed, the fourth fix, they, they finally figure out, I think, I think we've got this thing nailed down. By the way, if you're ever in Whitehall, Montana, say hey to Cliff for us, because eight hours, four parts, mom going down the interstate twice to get other parts, knowing that they could charge us whatever they wanted and take as long as they wanted, they charge us like 458 bucks. Wow. So seriously, let's go to Whitehall, okay? It's a, it's a dumb little story. I tell you it for a serious reason, though, which is um, we've been talking about leaving home, being out on the open road, and there can be a fair amount of romance and adventure and excitement in that experience. But it would be really naive and flippant to act as if the experience is all adventure and romance. Um, that's more tourism than the experience of being a refugee or an exile. In fact, refugees and exiles often find themselves most at risk and vulnerable in the world. And I mean that whether you are a literal physical refugee or exile, but I, but, but I also mean that in the experience that so many of us have had of finding ourselves far from home. And you get out there to those desolate places and you realize you are at the mercy of forces beyond you and you don't know where the help will come from. But you know that if the help doesn't come, you're stuck. You feel like you could be left in a very bad place. This is not just the experience of um, modern people. It's also deeply built into the experience of Israel as she wanders. And there's a sentiment that Israel experiences when they're out there on the open road that I find really familiar after you get over the romance, after you enjoy the exhilaration of being free from the place that you came from, there's another sentiment that comes along. And I want to show this to you. Now, um, in the story that I'm going to show you, we, we've, we've moved through Abram and Joseph and Moses. So Abram, you might remember, Abram's the one who gets called out in Genesis 12. And he doesn't get a lot from God, except I'm asking you to leave everything that you know, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. Your life will be a, a conduit of the goodness of God, sort of flowing into the world, and your family will grow. And then a few generations later, we meet one of Abram's great-grandsons, great-great-grandsons, one of the fulfillments of that process, a man named Joseph, who finds himself kicked out from home and ending up in Egypt, right? 
And then Joseph ends up sort of ascending to a place of status in Egypt, and then his family comes into Egypt where they are protected from a great famine that's happening. And that same family then generations later is much larger within Egypt, and yet the Pharaoh no longer trusts them, and so they become enslaved people. And it's that enslaved people that God uses Moses to liberate. And so in Exodus, we have that big, hopeful, liberating story of people who've been captive being brought out into their freedom by a God who has heard their cry and said, I no longer want you to be slaves, I want you to be free. And so they have this, this big, beautiful, like liberating moment. And then a little while later, they find themselves in Sinai in a desolate, terrifying, threatening place. Let me show you on a map what I'm talking about here. So on the left there, you have Egypt. Uh, and on the far right there, that, that, that sliver of green up there to the right uh, would be sort of ancient Palestine or what's uh, located as Israel on the map today, right? And then you have that orange Sinai Peninsula, and this is the place of Israel's wandering after they are liberated from their slavery. And Sinai is a brutal place. It's not the place of tourism. It's not the place of uh, adventure or vacation. It's a place that threatens them. In fact, uh, here's a description of the, the topography and the climate uh, from a guy named Thomas Cahill, who we've quoted before. Cahill says, Sinai is one of our planet's most desolate places. It would be hard to conjure up a landscape more likely to lead to death, a land bereft of all comfort, an earth of so few trees and plants that one may walk for hours without seeing a wisp of green, a place so dry that the uninitiated may die in no time, consummated by what feels like preternatural dehydration. This is the place they're walking around in after they leave the place of their captivity. And if you've ever been liberated from a place that um, you needed to be liberated from, but then found yourself out on the open road after the romance is gone, after the adventure has faded, and it's just scary out there, you might relate to Israel's response to this. So in Exodus 16, uh, we find what I find to be this incredibly like, humanizing experience for the Israelites where we read this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. By the way, in more traditional translations, that phrase is rendered flesh pots. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for modern translations. <laughs> there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. This is that all too familiar moment where you find yourself wandering, find yourself on the open road, and you're so in touch with how hard it is out there on the open road and perhaps you've forgotten a little bit about how bad it was back there, and so you idealize the past and you problematize the present, and you say, I would rather be back there because maybe I was enslaved, maybe I might have even died back there, but at least I knew where my next meal was gonna come from. At least I wasn't threatened there the way that I'm threatened here. Like, I would rather have my slavery back because at least it was stable. Out here, I don't know where my help is gonna come from or who I can trust. If, you, if you've ever had a moment where you left home, whether called out or kicked out, whether you wanted to be out there or whether you went kicking and screaming, you get to that open road moment and perhaps you say to yourself, man, it's hard out here. I wonder if this is a mistake. I wonder if I could just get back, go back. I wish I could return to the way things were, the place that I came from. Has anybody ever been there? 
Israelite um, gets over the big hopeful moment of their liberation, a moment that I'm sure was exciting, promising, exhilarating. A few days, a few weeks later, they're still out there in the desert, and it's threatening. And I, I just want to say, like, if you are far from home, and the romance of the adventure is gone, I think you're in good company. I don't think you're crazy. I think this is uh, very much a part of the experience of wandering. Now, um, God responds to them. God hears them, even though they're grumbling and complaining and saying ridiculous things like, we wish we were back in our slavery than out here in this free place. God says this to them in the next verse. The Lord says to Moses, I'll, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So this is the experience that then is named manna, uh, just a few verses later here in Exodus chapter 16, and again in the book of Numbers. This is the manna experience. So, so God hears them, and he says, I'm actually going to like sort of rain down from heaven the sustenance that you need on a daily basis, and then on the sixth day, twice as much. This anticipates Sabbath which is a pattern that will be built into their life right around the corner when they receive the law and understand that sort of way of six days in one, right? So it anticipates Sabbath, but it's basically saying like, you're gonna get just enough for what you need for today, and you're gonna go out and collect what you need for today, and then tomorrow, I'll give you what you need for tomorrow. Uh, man is funny. Uh, it's a, it, there's a couple of etymological ideas about where this word comes from, but one is that in the Hebrew, it's something like meaning, what is it? which I kind of picture the Hebrews having like an Abbott and Costello routine out there. Like, hey, what is it? What is it? No, what is it? Yeah, exactly. What is it, right? <laughs> like their word for this thing that comes down is this sort of undescribable, perplexing sort of gift, which is, what is it? I don't know. But it came, and apparently it's supposed to be what we need today. This is the manna experience. Along the way, some of the Israelites decide they don't want to have to trust tomorrow for what they need tomorrow. So today, while there's a little extra manna out there, they'll collect a little extra just to stockpile it, and they wake up the next day, and the extra manna that they had collected against the instructions they'd been given has been rotted, and maggots are infesting it there. So they're out there on the open road, and back in Israel, they were enslaved, but at least they knew where their next meal would come from. It seems that back in that place of slavery, they could assume that tomorrow will be like today, and there's a sort of rigidity to that experience that became dependable for them, perhaps even became an idol for them, because at least they don't have to wonder, at least they're not vulnerable, at least they don't have to really trust anyone or anything. And then they're called out into the wilderness where God hears their need, provides exactly what they need, but they're gonna to have to wake up each day and ask themselves, do we trust God again today? Have we learned enough of God to know that, that Today's mercies will be enough for today, and tomorrow's mercies will be enough for tomorrow. Today's gifts, today's provisions for today, tomorrow's for tomorrow. And it strikes me this is a very different mode of faith or life or spirituality than the one that we cultivate when we are securely at home, able to stockpile for ourselves all the things that we need. It's vulnerable. It can feel precarious. And yet, I think it's out there in that vulnerable, precarious sort of place that we learn to trust God. Now, uh, the manna experience for the Israelites becomes so central to their identity that a little while later, when they construct the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, this is, 
the artifact which represents for them the, the center of the presence of God in their midst. So the Ark of the Covenant becomes the thing that would then occupy the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, they would take it with them into battle to sort of remember the presence of God going with them into battle. It's their central artifact of identity and of their experience of God's presence in their midst. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, a few things are placed, one of which is a jar of manna, as if to say whether we are wandering or whether we have come to the homeland, we will always remember that part of who we are is that we, we are the people who learn to trust God in the day by day, that he will give us just what we need as we wander, but probably not much more, but it'll be sufficient and we'll learn to rely on that sort of everyday faithfulness that we are asking God to give us while we're out here. So the man experience shows up in Exodus and Numbers and it's uh, placed into the tabernacle. And then there's one other place in the scriptures where this whole manna thing is named. And it's actually in the gospel accounts, the stories that tell the, the life of Jesus. Uh, so hang with me for a little bit of biblical studies uh, observation for a moment, okay? Uh, in the New Testament, you might know this, might not, but we have four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in all of those accounts, uh, there's, a, there's a way in which Jesus instantiates what we call Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, or this sacred meal. So he's with his friends, and they have a meal, and with the bread and the cup, he says, this is now for you my body and my blood, and I want you to return to this meal again and again and again. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they have one way of sort of locating this meal, and then in John, he sort of does something different with it. Um, when you're reading the Gospels, it's important to remember that they're, they're clearly narrating something real that happened they're also doing it in a way that tells more than a journalistic account. They're giving you a narrative which is steeped in theology or spiritual experience, and they're trying to create for you more than just an encounter with a historical event, but an encounter with the theological or spiritual import of that event, right? So the gospel writers, I, I really believe, are telling real stories, but they might relocate them. They might set them side by side in different ways in the same way that a filmmaker might have one scene followed by another, and the, the ways that they sit next to each other is important for what the movie means, right? So in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus uh, is with his friends for a Passover meal, and it's in the context of the Passover meal that this Eucharist meal is established. Now, Passover is the meal that the Israelites ate on the eve of their liberation. The big moment when Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go, and God brings the plagues, and Moses finally relents. It's in that moment of liberation, of exhilaration, that the Israelites eat the Passover meal. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they locate the Eucharist meal inside the Passover experience as if to say this Eucharist meal is a liberation meal for anyone who needs to leave behind the homeland of their slavery and follow God out into that wild, open, free place. Liberation meal for short, right? And John, by the way, also later in John's gospel tells this meal story in the context of Passover. But earlier in John's gospel, John does something unique in chapter 6. He says this isn't just a liberation meal tied to Passover. He also says it's a sustaining meal for the everyday walk long after your liberation moment is a forgotten memory and you're out there tired and alone. Let me show you what I mean. John 6, Jesus is with his friends. And he said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus would go on in John 6 to say, I'm that bread of life. That whole manna thing was sort of pointing forward to this experience that God is continuing to give God's self to people who are wandering in the wilderness as a sustaining meal for you every day. He names this meal of bread and cup 
as uh, the, the sort of thing that manna was pointing toward, not just a liberation meal, not just the big banner moment when you walk away from home, but a sustaining meal for the moments when the romance has gone, the adventure has faded, and you're out there alone, vulnerable, and afraid, wondering who will help you or where your next meal will come from. This is also a meal for that. And so today, as we come to the Eucharist meal, if you find yourself wandering, I would say, yes, this can be a liberation meal where you celebrate the fact that you were able to leave behind a place that was no longer right or good for you, that you've been called out into a wild, open freedom where you can grow and become who you're here to be. But I would also say, let it be a sustaining meal for you today. Some might need to come to the table and just acknowledge, it's been a long, hard walk out here on the open road. Maybe I'm a little bit alone. Maybe I'm a little bit threatened, a little bit vulnerable. Maybe I'm hungry. I don't know how my needs will be met, how my desires will be fulfilled. Maybe you feel like you've been forced into a fast from the things that your soul longs for as you wander. Maybe this meal would be a place to bring that hunger and to simply and freely ask God for the things that you need. Maybe this is a place um, to say thank you to God because perhaps you look back on your wandering and maybe you realize you didn't get everything you wanted but you did have everything you needed. Maybe wandering meant leaving behind a tribe of people who were all around you and cheering for you and it's been lonely, but maybe at the table today you realize you have been given small gifts of the right people at the right time to cheer for you for a moment, to strengthen you for the walk. Uh, maybe, maybe it's been that back home you had a sense of who you are and on the open road you've had to forge a new identity and maybe you look back on the road that you've been walking for a bit and you realize there are moments, experiences, voices who have begun to whisper to you and tell you who you truly, deeply are. And maybe you could say thank you to God at this table today, not for, not for some overindulgent feast, but just for that simple sustaining gift that somehow every day you've woken up and discovered that you had what you needed and you're here today, right? I mean, even if there are days when you don't feel like you had what you needed, you're here today. Somehow you've been sustained. And then the other observation about a meal for wanderers is that tables in the scripture are overwhelmingly experiences of belonging. Uh, I keep thinking about um, the ways that I'm hearing from this community, um, how many feel like exiles, wanderers, a little bit homeless, a little bit of nomads. And it strikes me that, that we can choose to be a particular kind of family as a church which is a place of, of radical belonging, but the kind of belonging that nomads share with one another, meaning that we'll probably never be the kind of church that tries to get you to come home and stay home, that we'll try to be the kind of church that loves fiercely but holds loosely and understands that we need to bless one another as we come in and bless one another as we go out, and that the, the goal isn't to build too much security for ourselves but to give ourselves just enough to keep walking forward into whatever wild future and freedom that God has called us to. Uh, this could also be a meal of belonging for us today. I know many here feel homeless, and it's certainly our hope that SBCC is a place that you could begin to feel deeply at home. But I also know you might get called out to wander again. And if that's the case, I hope you'll find this as a community cheering for you, sending you, blessing you, saying, yeah, if God is calling, go. Because who we become and what we are here for happens more on the open road 
than in the fortresses of stability and security that we have built for ourselves. So let this be a sustaining meal for you today, and let it be a belonging meal. I would even say, by the way, um, that one of my great hopes for our community when we come forward to the table is that we would keep our eyes open and look at each other. <laughs> today when you come forward, there will be a flesh and blood body, a person there to look you in the eye and say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And if you're brave enough, perhaps you will return their gaze for just a second. I know eye contact can be weird, but maybe you could simply receive the sacrament, not just of this meal, but of their presence as they speak to you and say that even if you are wandering, you belong here and we're a family. Uh, so uh, I wanna ask those who are gonna serve you to come forward. I'll serve them in a moment, and then when they're in place, you're free to come. But as they do that, I want to remind you, not just of that moment on Passover when Jesus was with his friends and he took the loaf of bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. I want to also remind you of that manna experience of people who had left home and found themselves in a difficult and vulnerable place and who grumbled and said, maybe it was better back in our slavery because at least we knew where our next meal would come from. Remember that Jesus took that experience and carried it forward into this experience and said so the bread of life has come. God has continued to give God's self to the world for anyone who finds himself or herself out there hungry, alone, or afraid. So this might be for us not just a Passover loaf, but also a loaf of manna, a simple sustaining gift on the road that we walk. Jesus names the cup as the cup of a covenant. Uh, covenant is a strong word for promise or faithfulness. Uh, if you come to this cup today, perhaps you will think of the ways that God has proven unexpectedly to give you what you need every day. And perhaps that will strengthen you with courage for the road ahead. And a little fresh adventure will rise up in your spirit, a little fresh romanticism about the path that you are on. And perhaps you will say to God again, let's go. Let's keep walking and discovering the faithfulness of God who cares for those who are wandering. So God, I pray these would be for us the gift of Jesus given for the world. I pray that in these elements we would know your presence. I pray that in these elements we would name our hunger or our fear. I pray that in this meal we would perhaps admit that we have been tempted to go back to the places of our slavery, to the places that constrained us, that we wouldn't hang our heads in shame, but that we would ask you to make us strong and brave again to keep walking the open road with you. We thank you for the sacrament. We trust your presence within it. And we ask you to make us a peculiar family of nomads as we come to the table. I pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. It's the body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you.
So may you know the God who liberates you, who calls you out on the open road to form you into a person of freedom, to make your life a gift for the world. May you also know the God who sustains you long after the romance of that liberation has passed, when you are hungry, tired, alone, or afraid. May you taste the manna and the daily gifts that this God provides. May you keep your courage may you keep walking. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. I love you guys. See you soon.